This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm well. I'm well. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. And who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, we've got Neil Oringer on the 3D Pod today. And Neil um, is the president of Astro America. Astro America is kind of like a, I don't know, it's like a kind of do tank instead of a think tank, I guess. Uh, and it's a, 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 it's focused on, you know, bringing additive manufacturing practice and cooperation to America. So at the moment, it's kind of working together with a bunch of really large defense contractors to get them to uh, build a US-based uh, additive manufacturing supply chain consisting of smaller companies. And uh, well, we're really curious about what he's going to do before uh, after that, or what Astra is all about, because a relatively new player on the uh, the field, being around for a couple of years now. Before that, uh, Neil did a lot of stuff. He started uh, his career as a legislative aide, uh, senators, uh, and a legislative assistant, and then uh, he was a, a staff member of the U.S. Senate uh, Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. Then he became the director of manufacturing for the United States Department of Defense. Then he became a senior advisor to the White House, a visiting researcher at the Army Research Lab. Lab. He worked for 3D Systems and GE, and now the president of Astro America. So, uh, wow, uh, quite the CV there. So Neil. Neil's so a real underachiever. Yeah, <laughs> man. <laughs> Guys, I don't even need to be here. This is awesome. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Just listen. Okay, so, so first, how you get started in additive? Yeah. <laughs> Other than the fact that Joris kind of alluded to some of it, but <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm all done. I'll see you later, guys. This is great. <laughs> No, uh, th- thanks so much for that uh, lead in. And I really like the do thing, uh, do tank. I thought you said dude tank at first. No, no, away, but. no, no, but do t- I like the idea of a do tank as well, actually. So <laughs> <laughs> Take uh, that, Rancorp. Um, <laughs> uh, no, th- uh, thanks. Uh, so the question was, how did I get into uh, additive? It's actually, it's probably similar to a lot of other folks with liberal arts backgrounds like me. <laughs> you know? So, uh, so, so, so yeah, I, uh, I joined the Department of Defense in 2010. I was appointed by President Obama, became this position of director of manufacturing. And here I am, this uh, short Jewish guy with soft hands walking around the Pentagon calling himself the director of manufacturing. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of an interesting uh, situation. Um, and we were tasked with, well, let me tell you what director of manufacturing means. So at the time, we actually set up an office at the department, which oversaw a number of different uh, important uh, federal programs. One is called Defense Production Act, uh, Title I and Title III. And DPA has been getting a lot of attention lately, uh, but it's, a, it's an authority that dates back to uh, the Truman administration that allows uh, the government to help mobilize industry to meet critical national security needs. And so I oversaw uh, those programs to help uh, invest in capital expenditures uh, to expand productive capacity in key defense sectors. And then another program called Mantech or Manufacturing Technology. And that is a program that dates back to the Eisenhower administration, focused on investing in manufacturing technologies that will drive down weapon system cost and drive down delivery times. And then we created a couple of other programs, including one called Industrial Based Analysis Sustainment and a few other things. But in the, in the context of Mantech, 
um, we were talking to the White House about how we can make a big impact uh, and, and borrowing a page from the Europeans. Um, what could we do to accelerate the adoption of critical new manufacturing technologies that would not only have a critical national security impact, but a broader economic development impact as well? You recall, we are still kind of climbing our way out of the Great Recession from 2008, and uh, there's a real need to figure out ways to help uh, bring back manufacturing. So uh, I surveyed, as the head of Mantech at, at the Department of Defense, I surveyed the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Defense Logistics Agency manufacturing technology experts and said, what is that one manufacturing technology that you guys think we should prioritize? If we were going to create a manufacturing institute, which is what the White House was asking us to do, you know, what is the one area that could have the biggest impact right now to meet your needs? Uh, and, you know, the, the Department of Defense, people think of it as just a bureaucracy, but it's, it's actually, it's its own economy. It's a huge supply base, you know, $700 billion a year. So, so when things happen in this economy, it has a ripple effect all across the other parts of, uh, of the economy. Uh, and these guys never agree on anything. If you know anything about the Army, Navy, Air Force, the DLA, engineers, the Mantech, uh, they, they, uh, they're very collegial, like to work together on, <clears throat> on a lot of projects. But when it comes to prioritization, for obvious reasons, they, they don't always agree. And, uh, and, and this was one where they had consensus. Everyone said 3D printing or additive manufacturing back in, uh, I guess at this point it was 2011. They said, if you're going to build a, a, a new manufacturing institute, want me to focus on this area. And so we started to scrutinize what that actually meant. And uh, later on in 2012, we, uh, we scrambled and put together a, a competition, uh, pushed out a, a RFP, uh, and described all the things we wanted to have accomplished by a manufacturing institute, uh, which, which, uh, which my team awarded in August 2012, and it became what's now America Makes. And, uh, and, and what was really exciting about it at the time was, you know, I, I didn't have much time, but I had to, I put together a package of $30 million of federal investment and it, at, in the initial salvo and industry matched us with $50 million. So, you know, the federal government says, uh, we want to put together some projects that will accelerate adoption of 3d printing. Um, but we don't want to do this alone. We need your, we need your skin in the game. What are you going to do to push this forward. And the, the industry was, was amazing. They, they really uh, stepped up to the plate as well as uh, key universities and, and other entities as well. And so that's how I got introduced to Additive was uh, actually engaging end users and trying to figure out solutions uh, for their key supply chain needs, both in terms of addressing critical short-term supply chain needs, as well as, um, you know, driving innovation and new designs and new capabilities. And so we, we started what's now America Makes, and, and they are doing amazing work. You know, 10 years later, they're, they're really uh, making, a, uh, making an impact. So it was a real, real great, uh, great opportunity to, to get to know a, a really exciting industry. And it's really funny, actually, uh, when I, I left the Pentagon and went and did a couple of other things in, in the government. But when I left government, I, I started talking to a couple of companies, and uh, one of them was 3D Systems, uh, where Chuck Hall, uh, who invented 3D printing, 
um, was, and uh, they they asked me if I would help them set up a, a an R and D, a defense R and D uh, outfit there, and I was just so excited uh, with the prospect having having uh, you know, having seen it from from the other side. And I told my wife, okay, I'm leaving government. I'm finally going to start making money. <laughs> I was looking at the stock prices back in, you know, 2013. I'm saying, geez, you know, I'm going to be working for the next Google. I mean, these guys are on this incredible trajectory. And they actually, my wife makes them, likes to make fun of me because um, you can actually track, uh, as soon as I went on to, um, to, to work at 3D Systems, you can actually watch the trajectory of their stock I think the day I was hired, what caused that? (laughs) (laughs) I'm the reason. This is what happens when the defense department people come sitting into private business, man. (laughs) Right. right. (laughs) Exactly right. And then, and then, so what's the, the so how did you end up involved with Astro America? What, what does it do? I mean, I mean, yeah. Or, or why, 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 what's the logic for starting it up first? So start what, no, where I, it came from. It's something I, I ask myself every day. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I was going to say we were minding our own business, but that's not quite right. So I was working uh, for, uh, in private industry. And in 2018, uh, we started talking to, DARPA, which is um, some, some old colleagues from the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency in, in the Department of Defense, and they were quite concerned about the, uh, the pathway for building what are called hypersonic systems, so systems that, are, that go faster than the speed of sound, or in this particular case, five to ten times uh, faster than the speed of sound. We've been, uh, you're, ta- you're making fun of the Department of Defense, I'll, I'll Stick with that theme. Uh, they, uh, you know, they they poured, you know, usual story. It poured billions and billions of dollars into research over decades into hypersonics, more than anyone in the in the world. And there was, and this is all open source, public information. You know, the the Chinese and the Russians uh, were being very public about how they were at least trying to be perceived as cleaning America's clock in this area. They were actually industrializing and making hypersonic systems. And meanwhile, you know, the U.S., uh, there was concern, was falling behind in terms of actually producing hypersonics. So we were actually approached by DARPA and talked to them about, um, you know, our experience setting up manufacturing institutes and and other activities. And <laughs> it's, just, it's just a case of, you know, victim of your own success in a little bit, I guess. And, uh, we were told, you know, DARPA doesn't really like to to go to usual uh, beltway bandits and ask for reports that, you know, you could have predicted what was going to be in there. So they said, hey, we have an idea. Why don't you uh, why don't you create your own nonprofit <laughs> and see if, if it'll be easy. No problem. Uh, but That's an easy uh, create a nonprofit and, and let's see if we can talk to you about uh, getting your advice on how to how to uh, change the way we're doing things. So something's not right. And so um, we did create Astro and we bid on a proposal and we actually um, were awarded a, a little contract to advise them on how to speed up the transition from research and development into production to actually start making hypersonic systems. It was actually a really, really fun enterprise. So we, uh, we event- it kind of culminated in a workshop we put together 
with 100 plus uh, leading experts. You can imagine literal rocket scientists. So, so uh, scientists from the Department of Defense, all these different agencies, NASA, uh, and then all over the brightest minds from all over industry uh, and, and universities. And we really tried to have a intense conversation about what could we do to move out on, on speeding this, this, uh, this activity up. And a lot of it revolved around 3D printing, frankly, at least for the kinds of hypersonic systems we were talking about, scramjets or air-breathing uh, systems. Metal additive is a, is a critical piece of this because there's, as you know, geometries that they want to achieve that no other manufacturing process can, can really achieve. And so we, we put together this, this uh, study and advised them. A, a lot of the findings are sensitive, but, but there is a, a little brochure the Department of Defense let us uh, actually release to the public, uh, which really scrapes the surface of what we actually found. But, um, but it, was a, it was a really exciting um, endeavor. And we were kind of off to the races from there. We uh, now are also running a, uh, a research and development contract uh, vehicle for the United States Army Ground Vehicle System Center. They uh, designated Rock Island Arsenal in Rock Island, Illinois, which is in the Quad Cities on the border of Iowa and Illinois. They de- uh, the Army designated Rock Island as the Additive Manufacturing Center of Excellence for the for their for the Army, and um, we're kind of working with the Army to help develop uh, new technologies and new capabilities that will advance the Army's uh, goals, including helping develop the world's largest metal 3d printer and then trying to figure out ways to um, to actually get some value out of it injecting it into key supply chain so uh, as you sort of indicated we've now kind of divided astro into two parts we're a think tank where we can advise government officials like uh, darpa and others on policies that might be useful and effective to advance u.s competitiveness in manufacturing particularly in 3d printing and we're also a research institute working with the Army uh, to develop novel uh, 3D printing technologies. Okay, that's cool. So first, let's talk a little bit about these hypersonics. I know there's a lot you can't say, but I've, I've, I've called them before like the ultimate high ground because like, you can potentially get something, a payload, a sensor, or whatever, or maybe even a person, right? Uh, somewhere in a, anywhere in the world in a very, very short time, shorter than anything else, right? Is, is, it, is that how you see this technology generally or...? Yeah, I, I think that's a really great way of looking at it, actually. Um, they're very different. Kind, it's like 3D printing, right? I mean, when you talk about hypersonics, it's not a monolith. There's so many kinds of hypersonics, right? So there's there's hypersonics that would be uh, not too fast that, you know, people, if people were going that fast, they'd turn to jelly. <laughs> you know? so, so, yeah, there had been talk. Um, actually, we had a conversation years ago with uh, former DARPA director tony tether and his vision of he's working with, yeah working yeah. with nasa to um you know get up to the low low orbit where you could imagine going from the united states to singapore within a half hour how how incredible would that be because now you're talking about not only uh you know being able to to communicate with people in person but bring people and bring things it makes the earth so much smaller um, you know, in the defense context, uh, you may recall a couple of years ago, 
um, you know, now we've really gotten a taste for for how bad Vladimir Putin is. But a couple of years ago, Putin was was um, uh, giving one of his equivalent of State of the Union address, and I believe he had a picture, satellite picture of of what looked like Florida behind him, and he was talking about first strike capability, um, and this this completely throws out the whole Cold War concept of mutually assured destruction. If you're able to now go much faster than any other missile in our arsenal, um, and you know you can get you can you can deploy a, a missile that will instantly almost <laughs> uh, blow something up, and meanwhile we have either missile defense systems that are struggling to you know to to shoot those things down. Or on an offensive side, yeah, they may they may destroy a bunch of our you know offensive weapons before we're even able to deploy them because they're so fast. It, it kind of changes the equation, and so you know that this is why there was there's so much concern from a weapon standpoint when you talk about cruise missiles. Uh, there's a lot of concern about what the other guys are doing in terms of of hypersonics and what we should be doing not as a me too concept but more as you know we we need to figure out ways to either resurrect you know a, a, a framework that works like mutually assured destruction uh deterrence or a, a defensive way of of shooting those things down and and both both things are part of the Biden administration's current thinking uh i i think thankfully but you're right on the on the commercial side there are a lot of folks now talking about both small businesses and large businesses about um using supersonic and hypersonic uh, uh technologies for uh, travel and and i think that is a really revolutionary concept that could you know change the whole way anything from amazon functioned as well as uh, passenger travel yeah, there isn't there. There isn't even like this crazy NASA grant where they looked at a couple of uh, commercial space companies to transport people to low Earth orbit, and then to then be like placing them with other vehicles, place them down on the surface. So you put someone in orbit in a space station, they travel for half an hour where they could be anywhere, and then you you bring them down to the surface. And they do talk about like something like like as in like it could also be soldiers, kind of like they, they mentioned in a kind of oblique, well, uh, oblique way, right? <laughs> yeah. So I bet there's like a couple of really nervous Navy SEALs saying, oh. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Those guys, I, I, they guys they like Space Force for. <laughs> well, yeah. We do cold, but I don't know if this is the cold we we set out to, to do, you know. But, you know. But I, I, I do want to ask, like, because I'm, I'm a big fan of DARPA and a lot of the amazing stuff it's done. But it does have a fundamental problem where a lot of technology gets created for as a result of DARPA, and then it just never sees the light of day. You know, I was involved in at least three projects that I think had pretty good legs and got to stage three and all that jazz, but, and then just went to a warehouse and that's that. You raise a really good, a really good point. And I guess I would address it in two ways. Cause I, when I was in the department, I mean, it's like everything else, you, you always are trying to find rivals and, and use them as foils. So when I was at DOD and I, I was running Mantech, I said, I actually said that a lot and mainly cause I was fighting over budget. I mean, DARPA had so much money and, and, you know, relatively speaking, I was saying, well, geez, wouldn't it be great if we could uh, get more funding? And I was saying, look, you know, unlike DARPA, 
uh, our organization, Mantech, is focused on actually working specifically with programs that exist, working with specific fighter jets or tanks or cars and, and trying to find solutions to drive down those weapon system costs and drive down delivery time. The alternative way of looking at it, though, I would say, is there's a, mar- a fundamental market failure. Um, industry is, and I know this now, having been in industry, I, <laughs> I used to say this without any credibility, but um, with being in industry, I'll say there is very little incentive to, to invest in basic research or fundamental research. Things that will um, go on uh, maybe in university labs or government labs, but um, you know, if there, uh, particularly now, uh, as people have stopped putting money into corporate labs, there's really little incentive other than to find out what is going to make you m- more money in the next quarter as opposed to the next five years or 10 years. And so, un- unfortunately, this means that agencies like DARPA or the National Science Foundation or, or, or even NASA, they need to be there to, to invest in basic research. A lot of times it's high risk. Uh, with the prospect of high reward, but you know sometimes you're you're gonna just throw a lot of spaghetti on the wall, and if even you know a fraction of that spaghetti sticks, that's a positive. That's a win-win. And I'm glad an organization like DARPA exists because they're 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 trying to not uh, hold people back. They're trying to say. Stop thinking practically for a second. Stop thinking about what you can actually make you a ton of money or what's actually something you could pull off tomorrow. But shoot for the stars. What is the art of the possible? Or what is the art of the impossible? What would be the most ideal? And there are, there are very few entities now that do that. Uh, you know, Bell Labs is long gone. I mean, there, there's so many, there, there's, there used to be so many outlets for this kind of thing in, in the United States, I think. And unfortunately, I think the government has had to fill the role of of driving basic research activity so that we can be innovative and and come up with new ideas. I mean, how many times whenever somebody asks me, oh, yeah, well, what did DARPA invent or what did NASA? Oh, my God. You know, Wait, people actually ask you that question? Oh, yeah. And and the and the issue is, well, <laughs> God. on the Internet? <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I was going to say that. Like, that's the thing is like. People have the same same things. They say over and over again, well, there's GPS, there's internet, and there's Tang. <laughs> and nobody <laughs> even drinks Tang anymore, right? Um, yeah, right. But uh, but but I and I think that's 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 sad. I mean, we we've gotta we've gotta figure out ways to to keep pushing people towards that basic research and get our I guess get our mojo back. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, that's my soapbox. But I, oh, I, but, uh, I, I think it's a valid no, point. I think it's a valid point. But yeah. I think, but there is a way to do it, like in a very kind of let's say modern contemporary American way. Like you could make that investable. You could have like a national science foundation where you put in commercial money and people can invest in it, and then they get a return of whatever of the portfolio of investments. You know, and, absolutely. Um, something like that could be very, very do- doable. You would just like you know, and the universities could even carry it, and they would just license part of that investment to these investors. And you'd have 99 things that wouldn't work, and then you'd have Google Earth or whatatever or something. Uh, you know. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so much up. But anyway, so, uh, but, and then, so talk a little bit more about this, this high, like, uh, what you guys are doing now also is Astro America is kind of like doing like 
I remember somebody like the, the head of Mozilla at one point, I don't remember who it was, uh, who was, they said that they were doing like cat wrangling was kind of their job. And you guys have, now have this kind of sidelining kind of big cat wrangling where you're trying to get all these big companies to strengthen their supply chain. So how are you doing that or how is that uh, working? Oh, yeah, no, that's uh, it's actually it's a really good segue from what we were just describing too. frankly. Um, we have this new initiative that I was really honored to kick off with President Biden uh, back in May. I had gone to the White House. This is this is one of these things where you got to be careful um, what you say because people end up, you know, asking to put your money where your mouth is. So I was I was complaining to some friends in the White House <laughs> a couple <laughs> months ago. And I was saying, as you do, as you do, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as one does, as one does. Yeah, I was saying, you know, you guys, you guys are talking about supply chain, and you know, anything I see, you talk about supply chain, it's just about ports and freights and logistics and supply chain so much bigger than that and that you know they they got mad at me for for being overly simplistic because obviously i was wrong they were looking at it at a much bigger level but but i was i guess i was just trying to be provocative and they said oh yeah well you you tell us what what should we be talking about what what is the what are the real supply chain challenges you're seeing. And this was after they had, just to show you how ignorant I was, this this was after the president actually issued an executive order specifically around supply chains and and investments. So I I was obviously out of my element here and I hadn't been in the game for a while, but but, but it was an interesting challenge. So I started talking to a couple of our friends across key industries that, that I'm most familiar with uh, aerospace, uh, or I should say aviation, space, and energy generation. And we started talking about some of the supply chain issues that actually predate COVID. Um, and, you know, when you look at issues revolving around casting and forging in this country, there have been, there's been a decade of consolidation in these, in these industries. And a lot of people don't think about casting and forging when they think about manufacturing. They think about the final product, the the car, the airplane, you know, everything that's done at the final assembly level. But of course, <laughs> we all know that there's a, a whole supply chain, a whole mix of companies all the way down. You know, you, you basically start at dust and you go all the way up to final assembly. And so we we're talking to folks about some of the challenges they are experiencing, particularly in the high mix low volume sector. So these are, you know, when when GE says, gosh, I really need to order a single part. Well, they go to their, I don't know, uh, 30 to 60 mom and pop shop suppliers who are machine shops. And they say, hey, we need you to fill this order for this one part. And these are qualified suppliers. You know, it takes a lot to become a qualified supplier for a company like GE or Boeing. And so that that supplier says, okay, well, I'm going to have to contract out to a casting house to get a a metal casting. And the problem is, of course, when you go to a, a foundry, uh, a foundry will, will is not really incentivized to build one-off castings, right? Because yeah. they <laughs> the whole the whole concept is like uh, it's like Jello mold. <laughs> it's much easier to build in <laughs> in high volume. 
um, just like my mom used to do around the holiday season. You know, she she she'd only make Jello in bulk because <laughs> it's, right. it's just easier. <laughs> right, exactly. So so um, so there's not incentive really to to make uh, you know to make a one-off part. And so we started talking about how something that should be requisitioned within a month. You know, you should be able to get this particular part within a month, this impeller or something. Uh, would take a year, sometimes two years, sometimes never get fulfilled. And it's not the fault of the machine shop. And GE recognized that. It's not their fault, their, their supplier's fault. We need to do something about this. And there are these companies now, as you well know, that are really taking additive seriously and trying to figure out how to use it as a, as a solution, not only for innovative designs, but also for supply chain uh, challenges. And so here's an exciting case where um, they said, well, what if we were to work with our suppliers to help uh, accelerate their adoption of additive manufacturing and, uh, and address some of these bottlenecks that have been occurring across these, these key supply chains? Again, that, that predates COVID. Of course, COVID exacerbated it. And so this is what kind of gave rise to AM Ford. So we, we, we took uh, several companies to 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 folks at the White House, and we all kind of agreed it would be really a great opportunity for us to advance U.S. competitiveness if we could figure out how to invest in our respective supply chains. So uh, really tremendous, uh, I think, of these companies. So Boeing, GE, Honeywell, Lockheed Martin, Siemens Energy, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon Technologies, uh, we all uh, joined together, uh, and they asked Astro America as a 501c3 nonprofit to coordinate uh, the communications and the implementation of, of, of this partnership to see how we could help uh, suppliers accelerate their adoption of additive to address a lot of these challenges in their supply chain, you know, address supply chain resilience. And so we've taken it on in three fundamental ways. Number one is how do you help these small businesses afford this equipment? Because <laughs> it's not cheap. And I know because I work for companies that used to sell them <laughs> and, and used to claim they were cheap. Uh, so they're, you know, they're, they're, they're expensive. When you're talking about metal additive, you know, a lot of these, you know, sort of baseline systems are going to be a million bucks. And then you have to get all the ancillary equipment. So number one is financing. How do we help these companies get the financing they need to afford this machine because yes, it may be more expensive in the beginning to buy these systems, but over the long run, we believe that there's going to be a good return on that investment as you're able to fulfill those, particularly those low volume, high mix uh, part orders quicker. Number two, in addition to financing, is qualification research and development. So this is a real challenging issue that a lot of folks outside of you know, our arena may not fully appreciate. But if you were to talk to someone from the National Institute of Standards Technology, so, so the uh, NIST at the Department of Commerce, uh, they've written a lot of reports about how it often takes 10 years and millions of dollars for supply chains to adopt new manufacturing equipment and new manufacturing materials. <laughs> and nobody wants to wait around that long <laughs> to begin to adopt something so important and impactful as this. So, and also a lot of times that burden for qualifying that machine 
is placed on the supplier. So this is, you know, printing, 3D printing hundreds, if not thousands of test articles, dog bones, basically, and subjecting them to so many tests. And you don't want to, you don't want to cut corners here, obviously, because when we're talking about putting parts into aircraft, into jet engines, you want to make sure that they're safe. So, so you need to do that testing that's actually going to produce an adequate data set to prove without a doubt, you know, nearly 100% of the time that that part's not going to fail, that it's going to be strong enough, that it's going to, you know, be subject to, to the kind of stress and be able to last long enough uh, to, to meet rigorous FAA standards. Or in the case of medical device, of course, you know, meet key health standards. But that qualification process, all those tests to become a qualified supplier often takes years and millions of dollars. And so, uh, oh, and, and the other awful thing is that, you know, if you become a qualified GE supplier to make metal parts for their jet engines, you have to start all over again to become a qualified supplier for Pratt & Whitney, even if Pratt & Whitney and GE are ordering similar parts. <laughs> and so one of the things we've been talking about within the AM Forward context is, could we create a, it sounds really obvious to you and me, but uh, it's it's not so obvious in the you know, world of proprietary business, um, could we create a common approach to qualification? Could we actually figure out a way to negotiate a common approach among you know, the likes of a GE, a Honeywell, and a, and a Pratt & Whitney Raytheon Technologies, or among Boeing, Lockheed, and Northrop Grumman. Uh, and and that, that is actually, I think, going to make a real profound impact uh, to speed up adoption of additive if we can get this qualification right. And then the third element is workforce development. So uh, how do you... <laughs> uh, how do you make sure that we get the kinds of of tr trained workforce to actually be able to um, to to make parts using additive? You know, a lot of these additive machines, particularly laser powder bed, and we're talking about 100, 200 parameters, 200 different buttons, dials, and and, and other kinds of of switches that you have to learn the best combination to meet particular requirements. It's it's not easy, um, but you know we've done this before. It, people had a had a big task of of adopting CNCs years and years ago, uh, and and we figured that out. And so uh, figuring out how best to rapidly accelerate the the development of a workforce, both retraining a workforce as well as uh, bringing in a new a generation of workers in this space, I think is an engineers is going to be key. And and that those are the three pillars that we're uh, building AM Ford around. Crazy talk. You can't retrain. Yeah, and are you going to, are you looking for new <laughs> members for that? Or is it, is it yeah, just right. like, this is just kind of the, the, the club you want to work with or do you, or how does it work? That's a, that's a, that's a great question. I get asked frequently, <laughs> how do I join? How do I get a trough of money to, to buy a 3D <laughs> printer? Um, so the, the thing about AM Ford is, it starts with the market. So this is very different from what we set up when we set up, say, America Makes, right? America Makes fills a really important uh, need on a national scale. They're a national additive manufacturing innovation institute. Uh, AM Ford is, is not as ambitious uh, in terms of trying to, to drive 
new additive manufacturing technologies and approaches. AM Ford is about recognizing that there's an existing market out there. And, and you know, at least in the in key areas like aerospace and defense and medical device and energy generation and shipbuilding, it starts with the guys that are actually the final assemblers, the guy that actually uh, make product. And they're, they're looking for supply suppliers um, that will be resilient and be able to meet their needs. So when you look at members, quote unquote, I don't, AM4 is not really a membership organization. It's a, it's a compact or an agreement among big companies, lead system integrators to invest in their suppliers. So yeah, if there is a, another big company um, they, they know how to reach me because <laughs> I know they've been asking me questions, but, but if there's another big company out there who is interested in, in figuring out how to, to convert their supply chain, uh, to, to 3d printing, help invest in their own suppliers. Um, yeah, we're, we're welcome to, to, to talking to them. And, you know, similarly, if there are suppliers out there who are currently maybe a, you know, you look at our companies, uh, you know, the big companies that are part of this uh, agreement and you say, well, geez, I'm a supplier to so-and-so company. I want to figure out how to uh, get into to additive. Yeah, they should feel free to go to the amforward.org website and uh, and look at how to contact us. We Let us know which of the lead system integrators, which of those big companies they're actually working with. And we can work something out to to determine how best those big companies can partner with them on on this activity. I'll say when I was at the government, uh, we used to pride ourselves on what they called whole of government approaches. They always loved to talk about, oh, isn't it great that the Department of Defense is working with the Department of Energy and the Department of you know Agriculture or what have you? Um, and and you know that that's always really promoted. Um, nobody really talks about whole of corporation, probably because it doesn't sound as cool, but it's, it's a really difficult challenge. It's something I really began to appreciate when I worked for a big company. These big companies are bureaucracies themselves. And so oftentimes when we're talking about basic research, oftentimes when a company, and I think this, get, this is a point that needs to be reinforced. When you have companies devoting resources and energy into research, it's often done uh, within an engineering organization. Uh, you know, and these are eggheads, people who actually are trying to come up with great solutions. But that doesn't always translate into something that's actually going to become product. Um, what we're trying to do with AM Ford is we're actually taking, uh, by working with the CEOs, and, and President Biden, I, I really appreciated, you know, the time with him that day because we we really reinforced this with our, with our uh, colleagues in the private sector. Um, we're bringing the engineering departments close to those supply chain executives. So you have a vice president of supply chain or sourcing working directly with the chief engineer. So it's not just about, oh, how do we start advancing a new design or, or experiment with some gadget in somebody's you know lab somewhere, but it's actually saying, okay, let's figure out how we're going to bring value to this. So bringing to the table both the engineers who like to tinker with 3D printing and the sourcing executives who are responsible for actually procuring parts from their supply chain and actually getting them to work together. I know, again, that sounds very obvious, <laughs> but, 
uh, you know, in this day and age when they're when these big companies have a lot going on at different times and they have all different motivations, um, having this kind of initiative to help uh, uh, integrate better and, and help that communication is uh, is, I think, useful. And we really are appreciative of the the leadership that these companies have shown in bringing that kind of, uh, you know, communication and coordinated effort uh, across those companies. So it's it's engineering, it's sourcing, it's legal. Um, there's, you know, at times other regulatory uh, bodies. And, and that's that's been really helpful in, in this initiative. Yeah. I think it's one interesting thing. You kind of glanced on it, but I think it's, you know, lack of standards. I think we've discussed this a bunch of times here uh, with different people. But also to me, and we, we, this has also come up, the idea is like, so yeah, I have to qualify stuff and that needs to be easier. But if I then get a new machine, I have to requalify stuff or keep on using the old machine. And that to me is a huge problem because like that would mean that, let's say if you started and you got your loans, you got your financing, I start three years later, I all of a sudden have like quad laser, whatever. And then if quad I... Mac starts a year later than that, maybe he has a six laser machine, you know, and then at one point we need to be able to upgrade, you know? I think this is going to be something, I mean, it just depends on the industry. It's going to be something that is going to vex people for years to come. I don't think there's an easy answer here, but you're right. I mean, people have, so uh, when I work for 3D systems, I know that, uh, you know, on the medical device side, they, they were, they, they built this incredible new building. And we had a great uh, groundbreaking uh, for it um, to serve the medical community. But it wasn't like we were going to be able to shut down the other facility because it wasn't just, to my knowledge, it wasn't just that, you know, we needed to um, continue to serve certain customers in the old building, you know, keep on building medical devices for, you know, because it had been uh, approved by the FDA or what have you. But it was, if you move the machine, you've changed the conditions upon which that machine is working, and then you're probably going to have to qualify it again too. So it's not just it's not just like uh, you know making sure that uh, we're not just changing machines. You have to you know if you change any of the variables, you're going to have to figure out ways to qualify. Now for for highly regulated industries like aerospace and FDA, you know, and medical. Um, it's hard for people to argue against being as safe as possible, even though it costs a lot of money to do that. But for other industries, there's lower thresholds and there's probably ways that we can we can figure out how to not just kind of give a, a broad brush to everything. Maybe even in the aerospace and defense sector, uh, maybe there are ways we can say, look, let's be a little more discriminating for really flight critical parts. Absolutely. We don't want more, you know, aircraft uh, uh, falling out of the sky uh, for 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 bad reasons, for negligence. Um, but but for things that aren't critical and have and we have still very good means to uh, to test and evaluate the quality of a part, you know, as appropriate. Let's try to find other ways. One of my friend, my best friend, actually co-founder of of Amer- of uh, Astro. Uh, Mick Marr ran a program at DARPA called Open Manufacturing, and its sole function was to use all kinds of modeling and simulation and probabilistic uh, data evaluation to figure out ways how to use technology to qualify 
parts as opposed to actually having to go through the process of destructive testing and and and, and other things and it it really did a good job um honeywell aerospace was actually a, a performer on that program and i think they did an excellent job at proving that we can substitute um a lot of this non-destructive testing uh, and destructive testing um, work that that goes that that has to be done through qualification. Um, you can substitute that with really good modeling and and other kinds of technologies if they're well validated models. And so, you know, I I think there is a possibility that we'll get there someday. Um, but I think that you know, for obvious reasons, organizations like the FAA and their and the people that they regulate. <laughs> um, are, are risk averse and they're going to be the last ones to want to adopt that kind of. Yeah. I like the, the model of working together. I think there's, there's a lot to be gained, especially on qualification standards. It's actually stupid that they don't all use the same things and uh, also use different ways of qualifying materials and grades and stuff and, yeah, and testing, uh, non-destructive testing, all that. It, it should it's like a common, be, yeah. common application for college, you know, yeah. it's a similar exactly. sort of thing. <laughs> right. Exactly. But I think it's, it's interesting because the first time, I heard of Astro America. I thought you guys were crazy because I, 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 you, you put out this paper on this hypersonic production accelerator facility thing, and I thought you guys were nuts. Really, I did. I, and the, the idea was the idea was that like Lockheed and Boeing would like work next to each other or something and like hang out in the cantina, cantina, and all this. And I was like, what? <laughs> and did you come? Did you come back from that? Is, you, is this like a toned down version of that, or is that still the dream as far as you're concerned? So, um, so that, that hypersonic production accelerator facility program, um, the, it was a study and you're right. It, it, it was a, Ambitious. Uh, it, it was, it was an interesting experiment. Actually just getting them all in the same room to talk to each other was, was really mm-hmm. novel. And we, mm-hmm. <laughs> we did yeah. it uh, a couple <laughs> of times and, you know, they, they, they were sizing each other up. Um, you know, the, the, the funny thing about the defense industry is it's relatively, it's a relatively small club. So one day Lockheed and Raytheon are competitors and the next day they're supplier and contractor to each other. Right. So they, 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 they necessarily have to be, or, you know, in the case of, of Raytheon, for example, Raytheon has been winning, doing a great job and actually winning a lot of hypersonic, uh, contracts lately. They're teamed up with Northrop Grumman uh, for for these hypersonic programs, and you know other times they're they're competitors. So it's not unheard of that these guys would be talking to each other. But you're you're absolutely right. You know there's such sensitive proprietary information, and just just what I was talking about before, developing a common common approach to qualification, getting GE, Pratt and Whitney, and Honeywell in the same room to agree to each other. It's 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 not easy, but but these guys they want to do the right thing. They're, they're all patriotic Americans. They also know that doing this right is going to help all of their companies. And so, no, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, our, our model works well. I'll tell you, I, I was, I'm informed by my experience actually on Capitol Hill. Um, in 2008, I was working on the Senate banking committee is in the, it was like the, the worst or best time to be a staffer on the Senate banking committee. Cause that, that was the height of the financial crisis. And my daughter was born. <laughs> and so I actually got to take paternity leave while the rest of the staff was was trying to figure out how to save the economy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you time. may recall that was the time they created this thing called TARP, which is this huge fund to save all the banks. Well, when I came back from paternity leave, everybody was worn out. 
And uh, and it was just that time when GM and Chrysler came to the to Capitol Hill asking for a bailout or a rescue. And uh, and the rest of the committee staff said, "Okay, Neil, welcome back. You're on your own." So, <laughs> so I was kind of was kind of the last man standing, uh, and and so I was kind of tasked with uh, helping negotiate the uh, from 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 Senate's side uh, the terms, the initial terms of what would eventually become the rescue of GM and Chrysler. And I'll tell you what was really neat about that. To your point, sorry, this is sort of a, a long build up to 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 say. What was really neat was GM and Chrysler testified on on Capitol Hill about the need to to bail them out. But you know who else testified was Ford. Ford yeah. didn't need a bailout. They didn't they didn't need to have uh, you know federal dollars and equity put into their company. But they did that because they said, look, if any one of these companies' supply chains go down, we go down too. And it was incredible. It was an, it was a remarkable, and it was a really telling. It really shaped uh, my outlook on on manufacturing supply chains. Uh, seeing that CEO uh, testify alongside his bitter rival, saying, "You got to rescue these guys because my fate depends on them." And it's a and it and it and it's probably even more complex and more, I think, relatable in the hypersonic space, which is a nascent industry. Which has even fewer players and few in a smaller supply chain. So I, I think it, it's a it's a good analog uh, for people to to realize that yes, these guys are bitter rivals, but they they're also codependent for better or for worse. But yeah, so the the HPAP we we we're going to create a set of compartmentalized bay. So basically, mm-hmm. that means you could have Lockheed and Raytheon uh, have their own compartments. Um, their own sort of buildings um, where they would be doing hypersonic research uh, without the other knowing. This happens all the time, all over the 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 the, the United States. If you go to major uh, Air Force bases, whether it's Wright Patterson Air Force Base or Tinker uh, Air Force Base, you'll see all of these companies. They set up shop. They have their their own facilities, and they're right next to their rivals. Uh, it happens today, and I think people are grownups. They don't they don't want to get in trouble. That you know, you, they go out of their way to make sure that they are protecting proprietary information and not, uh, you know, n- not uh, addressing conflicts of interest. Or I'm sorry, they go out of their way to make sure they're addressing conflicts oh, yeah. of interest uh, because because you know the 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 violations, the 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 impact. The, the results of getting caught of actually in violating are, are so severe nowadays that I think people are incentivized to do the right thing. Yeah, uh, I think that's also. So where does that leave America's allies? I mean, I understand from an American context, this all makes sense. Uh, go go team USA. But what about like for example, companies like SLM Solutions and you know material suppliers and, and other things? Is there a role for them in this as well? Or are you going to keep them at arm's distance, or is that just not your priority? I mean, oh, that's I mean that's a great. Oh, and, and SLM is now about to be gobbled up by. Uh, Nikon, by right? another company, by a Japanese company, right? Yeah, Nikon. Right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think uh, I think it's really important for people to to appreciate we we're in a global, uh, you know, economy. <laughs> Talk about codependence. Um, I think you know it's a, it's a double edged sword. Um, we've been really focused on the application of additive. Whether the three D printer is built in Belgium or Germany uh, or you know elsewhere. 
you know, we've been sort of focused on squeezing as much productivity out of that 3D printing machine as possible. Uh, you know, I worked at 3D Systems when we acquired uh, LayerWise uh, in Belgium, a fantastic uh, company in, in Leuven. And they've been doing a lot of R&D here in the United States, and they have a really well, well-oiled, um, you know, organization that, that is doing a lot both to advance U.S. competitiveness as well as, you know, push the, the envelope on, on technology. But people understand. Same with GE. They acquired uh, Concept Laser and Arcam. Uh, but, uh, no, I, I think that there's a really important place for us to be working together with our allies to advance state of the art, no matter where it is and where, no matter where the technology is. We actually, Astro currently has a project right now with the government of Guam. Uh, we're actually uh, advising them on, on, you know, here's a remote location um, where there are critical logistical concerns. And, uh, and we're, we're advising them on how to, to consider, you know, an additive manufacturing sector there. Um, if there was to be a sustainable additive manufacturing sector in Guam, you'd have to consider it not only as a place to support the U.S. military, you'd probably also have to sustain it through a, a vibrant export market as well, because, they're you know, just given where they're located. And that would require, you know, imports from probably places a little closer to Guam <laughs> than, than the continental U.S. And, and I think that makes a lot of sense. So it's silly to, to sort of Put our heads in the sand and and not acknowledge that we're a global uh, globally economic uh, uh, power. On the other hand, what's great about 3D printing uh, when it comes to the application is it allows you to localize manufacturing. So even if we use foreign sources or foreign technologies, um, when it comes to actually manufacturing parts, it allows you to be closer to the customer, the end end user, and that reduces a list of major logistical burdens. Sorry, but does it count under like back to the US for just a moment, but does that count even if the machine is made in Japan, let's say, but I'm making the, the 3D parts in the United States, does that count as being manufactured in the United States as far as the Department of Defense is concerned? Absolutely. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think the the challenge is people people treat 3D printing like it's a it's this magical thing that's any different from any other machine tool. I mean, we, we get all kinds of machine tools from all over the world and nobody, I don't know why people pick on 3D printing so much. You know, it's, <laughs> the, uh, nobody ever questions where a particular CNC system was, was built or a lathe or a Ford, right. you know. <laughs> that's, no, that's a good point, right? If I get my lathe made wherever and then take it to Yeah, US, but if I, can, if I download the firmware, I can, I can, I can remake the I object. Can, right. Yeah. That's a, that. That is one reason I'm like a little bit like you know a little bit careful, <laughs> but um, but um, and the other thing I mean, one thing I do want to ask is is okay, I think it's really nice. I think it's nice to have like a, a a tip of the spear kind of agency that 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 coordinates this kind of thing. And otherwise, it just wouldn't happen. But you guys are just like a, a nonprofit, right? So you're essentially like the U.S. has outsourced a part of its uh, AM strategy to American makes, and another part to you guys. Um, but you kind of like you're not a government agency. It's kind of like this. Yeah, it, it, you don't you don't think that could be also a bit scary? Like it being saying like that there's like this, you know, a group of people that that are they're just uh, dealing with this, and they're outside of government. They're kind of like dealing with uh, executing a lot of the strategy. No, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I I don't. I wouldn't look at it as that the government has outsourced uh, their strategy making to America makes or to us. 
the fact is the U.S. government has an incredible cadre of additive manufacturing experts uh, all over from NIST to Department of Defense, Department of Energy. Um, what we're being used for is to help uh, provide a, uh, a way to synthesize inputs from uh, from industry. So we're, we're 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 kind of a nice bridge or a connection between the government and industry. Um, you know, oftentimes it's it's a struggle to, uh, to to allow for private industry to talk to each other. You don't want to run afoul of antitrust rules. And a lot of times it's it's scary for for people to be thinking, oh, the industry industry is has got a uh, ulterior motive when they talk to the government, and so you know <laughs> they don't want to. So that there's a lot of distrust. Hopefully, Astro serves as a as a trusted agent. You know, we're, we have a lot of former government people working <laughs> there that people can trust, and, and and hopefully we can help as a nonprofit sort through kind of this uh, gray area whether or not it's um, you know what is actually going to be the, the most impactful for supply chain resilience or, you know, how can we come up with an innovative solution that the government needs? So hopefully we're, we're playing a, a good role. Like I said, building a nonprofit wasn't easy. Part of the issue is you need to prove that you're worthy of that nonprofit status that, you know, the status that you don't, you're not necessarily paying uh, federal taxes the way a for-profit does. And that means we have to be giving back. We're, we're trying to serve the public interest, the public good. Um, and so hopefully this isn't, uh, th- this isn't too scary. <laughs> hey, Neil, thank you so much. I really think, I think we can do another one as easily with you. Yeah, really we can. haven't touched on the, the, the tank hall thing where you're making <laughs> one of the larger, no, seriously, you're making one of the largest, or you're helping uh, commercialize one of the largest metal 3D printers in the world. Yeah. And a ton of other stuff. So if you want to come back one day, we'd love to have you. Oh, I'd love it. This is a lot of fun. I really appreciate yeah. it. All right, then. Thank you so much, Neil, for coming. Uh, and thank you for so much for telling us all about Astro America. Uh, thank you again uh, for being here, uh, Max. Always. Thank you, George. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod, and have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.